welcome to the Scam Economy with your host, Matt Bender. Yet another crypto lender has filed for bankruptcy, but this time with an FTX twist. I guess the writers decided that they can't just keep remaking the same old movie this time. Welcome to Scam Economy. I am your host, Matt Binder. And on today's show, we'll be talking about the crypto lending company, BlockFi. This is a company that failed in the early days of crypto winter in the summer of 2022. That is until Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX swooped in and saved the company only for the company to now file for bankruptcy because of the fallout with, you know, FTX also filing for bankruptcy. This is a stunning story, and we will be getting into it all. But first, to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash mattbinder to sign up for a monthly paid subscription to help this show grow. You can also go to youtube.com slash mattbinder and subscribe to the channel, and follow me at twitch.tv slash mattbinder, and also on Twitter at Matt Binder and the show itself on Twitter at Scam Economy. Now, if you didn't listen to my past FTX coverage, and we've been on a marathon of episodes now covering this saga, this is now the fourth episode in a row where we're covering FTX. And I strongly suggest, if you're interested, to go back and start at the episode with Mike Burgersberg that starts off this whole saga. But also, if you're just interested in listening to what's going on with BlockFi, we get you completely caught up here. So it is a standalone episode as well. Now, without any further ado, let's get to this latest failing crypto lending company. And joining me now to discuss all of this is Nick Day. He is a managing editor for global policy and regulation at Coindesk. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Now, Nick, it's it's a pleasure to finally have... No, I, I know this wasn't your specific story, but you, your outlet... Um, it's a pleasure to have on the outlet that had such a major role in in the FTX collapse. I mean, I feel like um, between CoinDesk and then there was that report that uh, from Mike Burgersberg. I mean, the, the combination of the two uh, really helped blow you know blow the whole FTX mess wide open. And, and it's a pleasure to have someone from CoinDesk on. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's a great team and uh, I'm very proud of, you know, what my colleagues have accomplished with just, you know, straight up reporting. Now, Nick, one of the companies we're going to focus on today that you've been reporting on is BlockFi and they are really feeling it from, you know, they're really feeling the FTX uh, collapse. Uh, and it's it's an interesting, you know, they, we've talked about other crypto lenders on this show before, like Celsius and Voyager, but BlockFi is, uh, I guess, their their story with, especially with the FTX involvement, is a little bit a little bit different, I believe. Can you can you explain what BlockFi is? Yeah, so BlockFi, like Celsius and Voyager, is a crypto lender, really. So, if you want to, you can put your funds onto it and uh, earn a return. And in the meantime, other entities or people can borrow funds in crypto or, you know, however, from BlockFi. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I guess, not too dissimilar from what you might expect from a bank. But BlockFi obviously is not a bank. It was a crypto company. Um, They actually had a run-in with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and I think 32 different state securities regulators earlier this year, basically saying, okay, so... One of the products we were offering a high yield earn product, uh, you know, generating a high yield uh, rather than you know whatever typical yield might get. Uh, it could have violated securities laws. They had to pay a hundred million dollar fine spread out across the you know thirty three different uh, regulators, um, fifty million to the SEC, fifty to the other regulators, and uh, basically worked to try and register this product. In the meantime, they had to get back to offering, you know, somewhat more prosaic products, um, you know, typical lending products and services. And uh, that was going fine until the market collapsed. And BlockFi in particular needed uh, some assistance from, you know, whoever was willing to provide it. 
FTX provided the, uh, I guess, the most attractive deal at the time. And that was going fine until FTX collapsed. And now BlockFi is <laughs> in, uh, in the bankruptcy process. So they, you know, they were they were failing, and then they had a a uh, you know a spark of relief, uh, you know, a hope that you know they had a, a then a hero comes along, and exactly. that hero just happened to be Sam Bankman Fried, who uh, we all know how that turned out now, and they're back where they were when they were failing once again. Pretty much. Now, what what is you know wh- why would a why would someone? Why would someone in the crypto space? Why would they have chosen BlockFi over, you know, Voyager or Celsius? Like, what was what what made them different? Like, why why would you have gone to them instead of one of these other crypto lenders? I mean, to some degree, I think a part of it is just you know how easily accessible or widely known they were. BlockFi was one of those companies that advertised, you know, in physical locations. So, for example, there was. I think like a year or two where if you're getting off of a train in Washington DC's union station, as soon as you walked into the you know main concourse, you would see these giant block ads and they were everywhere. So they had a, you know, I think certain recognition from that. They had, uh, you know, operating licenses in quite a few States, um, basically saying, yeah, they're you know authorized to conduct, you know, certain money transmission or lending product services. And, so, you know, if you're looking for a, you know, quote unquote, safe or reliable uh, entity to work with or to, you know, hire, you might go for one that says, hey, yeah, we have a lending license in the state of you know, New Jersey and, you know, hope it works out. Um, you know, beyond that, I'm actually not too sure if there were, you know, any specific like product differences between Celsius, Voyager and BlockFi. Um Really, a lot of it just kind of comes down to, you know, how they marketed, who they were looking after, who they were targeting, um, you know, what blend of institutional versus retail. And, you know, a lot of those same kind of, you know, company decisions that I imagine companies all over are making, you know, not just necessarily crypto lenders. Right, right. Well, what what type of yield were they offering? Because it seems like in in both, you know, the, the other crypto lenders I mentioned that, that recently failed, like Celsius and Voyager, it, it seemed like the... The the amount they were claiming you could earn, just to me, was a, a red flag from the get go, regardless of whatever the marketing or their position in the crypto space. It just you know seemed off. So what was BlockFi offering? Yeah, no, they were um, definitely above you know the what you might expect from a bank. They were, I want to say, they were somewhere between like eight and ten or eleven percent. Returns, which, as you say, are pretty high. And that is absolutely true that that's, you know, I think something that someone looking or working with normal traditional financial institutions might say is a red flag. In crypto, I think we saw a lot of the lenders advertising rates, you know, in that range. So if you're looking strictly within crypto, you might think that's normal, even if, you know, to anyone more familiar with traditional services or, even just people who are, you know, a bit more, um, you know, cautious might say, okay, well, that's, you know, clearly a concern. We don't know where it's coming from and we're not going to invest or, you know, put our money into this platform. Right, right. It's, 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 I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, how that's like a normal percentage amount for, you know, for how much you could earn by, you know, parking your, your, your crypto with one of these crypto lenders because, I mean, I feel like that's that's a major sort of issue that I don't know if people are are focusing on um, in that specific way that you framed it, which I think is really important. Like we hear so far on this show, I've heard from my guests who've come on to talk about Celsius and Voyager. Oh, Celsius offered this red flag. Voyager offered this red flag. I even just said now to you, uh, BlockFi offered this red flag. But to hear like, oh, the space sort of hammered it into the users that this is the normal amount you could earn in crypto to me like the that is actually more of a problem than like pointing to it and going like this is not normal no the fact that they sold it as normal because it was the industry standard should really be um you know something that that's a uh 
pox on the entire industry, really. Yes, and I mean, the thing is, too, right? A lot of the people, you know, if you're looking to put your money into a crypto lender, then you have your reasons, right? You're not look. You're very specifically not looking for a bank or for a traditional, you know, traditional firm for a reason. Whether that is because, you know, maybe you're one of the, you know, a fairly large percentage of the crypto world just straight up does not trust the, you know, more traditional financial world, and you know, whether it's because they've, you know, uh, read certain, you know, libertarian-esque, you know, books and literature and just kind of gone for it from a philosophical standpoint. Whether it's because they've lived through, you know, 2008 and, you know, just have, you know, a very practical experience of, you know, banks mess things up for them before and they don't want to go through that again. There is, a, you know, a number of reasons why, if you're looking for crypto lenders specifically, why you're doing that. And so, yeah, the fact that, you know, a lot of these crypto lenders are all advertising, you know, similar and fairly high rates isn't really, uh, it's not really going to be a red flag because, you know, you're trying to get out of the traditional financial world anyway. So, yeah, cool. Good for you. And then I think another part of the population was also just looking for, okay, you know, I have X amount of money. What's the best return I can get? And, you know, sure, if I put it into, you know, the S&P 500, I'll get some steady return for, you know, the next 20 years. Or I can put it into some crypto product and try and get a lot, you know, more very quickly. And, you know, it's hard to deny this whole you know not if not get rich quickly at least you know put yourself into a better financial position very quickly by doing the exact same thing just with a slightly different product right so when when blockfi failed that first time what what was the what was the i know the whole market sort of fell but what what was the specific thing for them like were they heavily uh into you know terra luna or what was the you know what when when did this go down for them the first time around and what specifically was was their downfall well the overall markets had a pretty rough year um you know we're down i think if you look at overall market cap we're down like a trillion dollars over the last 12 months um and two trillion dollars uh excuse me i think we're down two trillion dollars over the last 12 months one trillion over the last six months uh, very important distinction, but yeah, overall market has had a pretty rough year. And according to the first day bankruptcy hearing that BlockFi held on Tuesday, um, part of it was, you know, a little bit of exposure to Terra. Part of it was a lot of exposure to three arrows capital, which was th their second largest borrower. And, you know, when your second largest borrower suddenly says, oh yeah, by the way, we're in, you know, a liquidation process in the Brit uh, British Virgin Islands because things went wrong, then that's not a good sign, obviously. So it's been a rough year. And of course, BlockFi also did have to, you know, they had uh, regulatory issues earlier this year when they, you know, went up against and settled with the SEC and state securities regulators. So there was also that factor to consider. Um, so it sounds like, you know, what it really was just this confluence of all these things kind of happening the same, you know, couple month period. And they saw it you know, if not a bailout, at least some kind of financial support so that they could, you know, continue what they were doing without having to worry about suddenly losing all their money. Right. Now, I, Three Arrows Capital ha has been mentioned on this show before, and I obviously I have yet to do the episode on Three Arrows Capital. I think that'll have to be, uh, you know, in, in the not so distant future. Maybe you or someone from Coindesk can even come on to, to, to break that one down. But to, to just talk about them in the, you know, in what we're talking about with BlockFi. Um, did, did nobody look or care what Three Arrows Capital was doing? Like, I, I was doing, you know, research for this episode, and, and I, I, I can't recall if this was specifically based off of, uh, you know, what they, you know, the money they, you know, got from BlockFi, they were loaned from BlockFi, but they were taking this, this, this money they were borrowing and like turning around and buying like shitty NFTs. Like what, what, what? Like did no one care? Like, I don't understand. Like if I go to a, if I go to a bank and try to take out a loan, they are very interested in what I'm going to do with that money. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I was aware of Arrows Capital, obviously, but they weren't really a huge thing for me because I didn't 
well, for one thing, I wasn't actually fully aware of how many U.S. companies had put money into them. But it also is, you know, in hindsight, very remarkable just how many under-collateralized or non-collateralized loans they were able to take out from, you know, some sophisticated companies, you would assume. Uh, or at the very least, you know, yeah, as you say, they bought a lot of, uh, you know, NFTs and things. I, it, it is kind of really surprising to me. I mean... Crypto is in a the crypto market is cyclical. I think that's kind of like a common wisdom kind of thing. So I don't know if they just you know were caught by surprise when the market fell, or if they figured okay sure yeah we have some board apes we'll survive. But it is it is remarkable just kind of how that that particular collapse unfolded. Right. I'm I'm looking at this. Uh, uh, I, uh, I saw it from David Gerard who's been on this show before, but Three Arrows Capital literally, like I, I feel like I have to name the NFTs because you hear NFTs like, oh, maybe they, they bought a few high-priced board API clubs, which are obviously down in value, but in the NFT world would be considered a good investment. Uh, no, they bought Crypto Dick Butt number 1462. <laughs> and then they bought, I don't know, these other random ones like Arnold Freeney Shrimp. And a and a number of shiboshis. I don't even know what these are. <laughs> this is yeah, like... I have not heard of those latter two. I'm going to be honest. Yeah, it's so bizarre that. And this is how much did they lend to Three Arrows Capital? Um, I'm not sure if I got it or we saw a specific dollar figure. Actually, we might have. And I might just be forgetting. Um, but you know, it was a fairly significant amount if it was their second largest uh, borrower. Right. Let me let me see if I could really we got um hmm I, I can't pull it up right now, so I'm not gonna waste the time. But one one thing I do have in front of me, and maybe I could pull it up in a second, um but one thing I do have in front of me right now is that BlockFi apparently had debt to I, I know you mentioned the SEC uh fine earlier, but they, they didn't pay it off like they they owe a lot of money to the sec yeah so um basically as part of the settlement they owed 50 million to the sec and then 50 million spread out across 32 different state regulators and according to the first state bankruptcy filing that they published on monday one of their largest creditors is still the sec i think it's a number of three or four um and so far they appear to have paid about 20 million dollars of that fine to the SEC so far, or to the U.S. Treasury Department, which I believe collects fines on behalf of the agencies. Um, I don't think this is you know necessarily unusual. I know sometimes when you have you know large fines, uh, the agencies are willing to let you pay them in installments, which is I'm guessing what happened here, but that is just a guess. I haven't you know gotten any specific confirmation. Um, you know, one way or another, the SEC did confirm that the 30 million owed to it is part of that penalty, though. I, I, while you were explaining that, I, I, I was able to find uh, this is just on a quick search, but I'm seeing a f this from a few outlets. And I just I, I if this is I mean, this is apparently BlockFi's loan to three hours capital was uh, one billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, OK, that's <laughs> when we get to FTX, well, we'll have the you know, the BlockFi FTX uh aspect there as well um which is also roughly a billion right now i i like so so while we're talking about this well we can get it to ftx in a second because um you know and, and the second failure but i'm so enamored by like because i i don't want people to sort of hear because i feel like BlockFi is going to get off really uh, at least the narrative is going to change for them thanks to FTX. Obviously, this is not the preferable thing for them. They wanted to continue uh, with FTX's help. But I feel like people are going to talk about this now as, oh, BlockFi failed because FTX screwed it up. Um, but people have to remember, FTX came in because BlockFi screwed it up first. <laughs> um they, you know, I've seen the the uh, CEOs or owners of BlockFi online, like explaining, like all crypto companies explain when shit hits the fan, how uh, you know they weren't like the others and everything was right. 
uh, on their end, and they weren't Voyager or Celsius, even though, weirdly enough, the same exact thing that happened to Voyager and Celsius is happening to them. I, I don't, like, what, I don't, do, do you, have you, uh, like, who are the founders of BlockFi? Do they have, do you, are you familiar with their background? Do you, have you, are you able to tell us a little bit about them? Uh, only so far as their backgrounds were briefly discussed at the uh, bankruptcy hearing this week. Um, you know, Zach Prince, one of the co-founders, um, he's been part of a couple different startups before and founded BlockFi um, in New Jersey. The other co-founder, Florian Marquez, um, I'm actually not as sure her background, um, you know, but she's also been with BlockFi for quite a number of years. And yeah, you're right. During the you know that first hearing, the attorneys for BlockFi said that uh, this isn't like, well, really they were trying to draw a distinction between BlockFi and FTX. They weren't really comparing or contrasting to you know the Celsius and Voyager bankruptcies. Uh, but he did really want to draw a line, you know, between the BlockFi bankruptcy process and the FTX bankruptcy process. And honestly. It's hard to argue that there is a, you know, there isn't that difference there because the BlockFi bankruptcy process was pretty efficient, all things considered. Um, you did not have a hundred something different companies, including companies that you weren't part of, filing for bankruptcy. Um, they had their hearing within a day. They had the first day filing, you know, one day filed for bankruptcy. So um, they are definitely more organized than FTX. I don't know, you know, FTX in, is such a unique story though that. I don't know if that's a fair comparison. Right. But, yeah, no, beyond that, you know, um, the attorneys for BlockFi said that, you know, this company was more or less operational until the, you know, their counterparties went belly up. Right, right. No, I, I, I agree with that for sure, that, um, you know, that outlook, even from their perspective of arguing that they – they weren't FTX in the sense that it seemed like they um, were going through the motions of actually trying to run a real business, whereas it seems like I don't know what FTX was doing. Uh, it seemed like they were, uh, you know, I, I guess that's what happens when you get uh, 10 weirdos in a room <laughs> and just let them uh, go at it. I don't know. Um, but I... At the end of the day, they still said you took their customers' money and then said, "Oh, here's a billion dollars to a company that we're like." Well, I just don't. It's just like pissing the the money away in the same way. You know what I? That's just my outlook of it. Like how you got there, you want to argue that fine, but at the end of the day, you're you're both in the same place. You lost your clients, your customers, a lot of money, um, and I mean, it's. It's one thing to say the market downturn hurt the company and things went downhill. It's another thing to be so irresponsible like we've seen company after company where each one of them have left themselves open to complete failure based on just a single domino falling. Like that doesn't usually happen in any other business because they don't put all their eggs in one or even two baskets, like it seems every single one of these companies did. Yeah, no, I mean, this has definitely been, I mean, I've been covering crypto for five years now. This is definitely unique in terms of, uh, you know, just the sheer fact that you can almost trace a line from, you know, Luna collapsing in May to everything else falling apart in the, you know, over the next five months. Definitely have not seen that before. Um, I mean, it's weird for sure. Um, it is also kind of, you know, like prior to the last few months, really, you know, there was a lot of talk about contagion concerns within crypto and no one was really overly concerned, I'd say. You know, really the most you heard was, you know, regulators saying, oh, well, we're concerned about, you know, crypto contagion effects to the broader, you know, financial world. And it turns out that the real contagion was, you know, held within crypto and, you know, as soon as Luna collapsed, that, you know, I think more or less led to Three Arrows having issues, which more or less led to, you know, the bank, uh, the, the lenders filing for bankruptcy. So it, you can kind of say, oh, wow, you know, these companies were definitely far more interconnected than we expected them to be. And, you know, what that means for the rest of the industry is, you know, there's now a lot of soul searching going on. People are trying to figure out, OK, well, you know, 
are these other companies at risk? Are these other exchanges, you know, is there, uh, you know, concern that if, you know, this next company folds, people are going to try and pull all their money out of this exchange and that exchange uh, is going to be, you know, revealed to be, you know, whatever, uh, reapplicating their funds so that they're also doing something with customer deposits. These are real concerns now that, frankly, should have been concerns before, but it's, you know, there's nothing like a disaster to really bring things home real to you. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was thinking when when you were talking right there and explaining, um, I was thinking about how, <laughs> like, just I feel like it wasn't more more than just a few months ago that, you know, crypto advocates were online promoting crypto as the inflation hedge. And that was... <laughs> <laughs> and I got to tell you, it's someone who has zero uh, crypto investment. Um, I, 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 I think I've lost a lot less than uh, my losses are zero. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know what to say to that uh, other than I, I just. <sighs> so let's let's get to FTX now. So. BlockFi fails because of everything that was going on with the, the downturn that started in like May and then continued throughout the summer. Um, and then Sam Bankman-Fried enters the picture, you know, the crypto king of bailouts, always showing up at the moment when uh, a crypto company is at their lowest saying, don't worry, I'll save you because I care about the customers. What, what happened there? It, it turns out that quite a few of the customers' money were being sent to Alameda, which lost it. Uh, Alameda being a sister company to FTX. So I guess I should expand uh, quite a bit on you know what I just said. Um, Sam McMinfried founded FTX as a crypto exchange, and he founded Alameda Research as a trading shop. So I believe Alameda actually came first by uh, you know some time. FTX came a little bit later. But... You know, in theory, these companies were firewalled. They did their own thing. Um, it's even, you know, very explicitly written in FTX's terms of service that uh, FTX customer deposits cannot and will not be used for, you know, other purposes. Um, what ended up happening is, you know, my colleague Ian Allison published a report on Alameda's balance sheet earlier this month um, on November 2nd, revealing that, you uh, a good chunk of that balance sheet was surprisingly composed of this token that FTX had issued, this token called FTT. And that started raising questions. And then you mentioned Mike Burgersberg and, um, you know, between these reports, people started asking questions as to, you know, just what exactly FTX had in terms of holdings and, uh, you know, why Alameda would have so much of the FTT token. Um, this in turn led to, uh, Binance, which is a rival exchange to FTX, saying, "Hey, we we have like you know a couple hundred million dollars worth of FTT tokens, but we're no longer concerned. You know, we're no longer sure that it's actually worth a couple hundred dollars, so we're going to liquidate it." And obviously, that led to a panic because everyone's like, "Oh, well, you know, if you put a couple hundred million, you know, million dollars worth of tokens on the market, price is going to tank." And you know, Alameda briefly um, you know suggested they could buy all those tokens from Binance. Turns out they could not, and uh, the rest is crypto history, right, real world right. history now, business history. So, so uh, for for BlockFi specifically, did did Sam Bankman Fried already front uh, BlockFi whatever money they they needed to not, you know, go down in flames when he showed up to to save them already, or are they in some sort of limbo where they didn't get everything they didn't get anything where, where did that where are we at with that so this is where things are going to get a little convoluted so ftx extended blockfi a 400 million dollar line of credit of which blockfi appears to have tapped about 275 million dollars worth now in and of itself okay but what we also learned this week from the bankruptcy hearings is that BlockFi has about $355 million worth of crypto locked up on FTX. So when FTX suspended withdrawals and filed for bankruptcy, BlockFi, you know, suddenly lost access to these funds. It can no longer access $355 million worth of its own holdings because they're on FTX. What's more, BlockFi appears to have also uh, given Alameda Research a $670 million loan, I believe it was, 
Um, and Alameda defaulted on the loan. So when, there's when did when did they give Alameda this loan? Was this before this all happened? Um, I don't have a firm timeline. I want to say it was like pretty recently. That was you know within the last, like within the last couple of months, certainly. Um, after after Sam Bankman Fried entered the picture, or before that, like before after, BlockFi I failed. I, I want to so. say, yeah, like this is again, this is where things are starting to get a little convoluted, and uh. We don't have a very clear picture of what exactly is going on here. Wait, wait, wait. I want to, I want to get this straight because this is, I really want people to understand what they're, they're hearing here. So BlockFi is failing in, in the sum, over the summer. They are, they, they are, they don't have the, the liquid uh, cash, everything, the downturn with Terra and Luna, right. they lost money with crypto. Um, and so, and then their other crypto holdings were de- devaluing. So they need money. Sam Bankman-Fried enters and gives them a $400 million line of credit, of which BlockFi takes a little bit more than about close to three three quarters. Yeah. And they give Alameda a $600-plus million loan? Uh, apparently. That is indeed what seems to have happened. How does that? How do you? How do you give a loan to the to the the sister company of the company bailing you out because you don't have any? You don't have any. I'm, like it's, I mean, it's mind-boggling. If I can speculate a bit, um, I was trying to look up if I could find the uh, specific document, but there have been a lot of bankruptcy filings, so I don't have it on hand. But if I can speculate, my guess is what BlockFi needed was liquidity um, in the form of whatever you know, some way to just get things out into us dollars at the end of the line and the loan might not have been in you know us dollars so BlockFi might have had access to assets just not you know easily able to turn that into dollars and that might be why the loan or why the line of credit was extended and also why the loan still made sense but that's just speculation i don't know for sure if that's exactly how it played out um what i do know is that in the bankruptcy hearing uh, the attorneys for BlockFi said they have a $670 million outstanding loan to Alameda, which Alameda has defaulted on. And, uh, you know, part of what Alameda did to apparently try and stave off this default is uh, pledge Sam Bankman-Fried's Robinhood shares worth around $400 million or so, I think, or at least they were, you know, earlier this year, uh, as collateral. And when the default happened, BlockFi sued and said, hey, you know, we want this collateral now because you promised it to us. And because it's part of the bankruptcy estate for FTX, it's really unclear what's going to happen now. It's so amazing, like the the tower of just nothingness, like just hot air that so many of these companies are built on. Like it, it like FTX's value appears to have all been in its own token, and then these Robinhood shares, and maybe a few other things here and there. But those are the main. Those were the main sources of their, their, you know, how they were valued, their their actual worth. And then you have them bailing out other crypto companies who are, in essence, the same thing. And they're bailing each other out with, again, this these non these this non-existent funds, like the, these funds that are just in crypto where the liquidity is not even necessarily there to begin with. It's been a very weird year. <laughs> so, so what's what did what did what did BlockFi do with that two hundred seventy-five million they got? Was that in that that line of credit? What what do we know? What they so they took it? Obviously, they needed that right away. Did they do anything to settle up with the people they were in debt with? What do we know? What happened when you know in that time between? uh ftx saving the day for them and before ftx goes up in flames what it appears to have been used for is just helping customer or allowing customers to withdraw their funds from BlockFi's platform um which is why i'm you know why i'm speculating that it might have just been a liquidity play so when ftx filed for bankruptcy BlockFi said it was announced you know it announced it was suspending withdrawals on uh you know within days of the weirdness with FTX. So um, it does look like the line of credit was mostly used to service BlockFi's customers. And as soon as they realized they weren't getting access to that, they uh, suspended withdrawals, which um, 
you know, it does kind of get back to the question of, you know, what exactly does, you know, BlockFi currently have in terms of assets. Um, and for what is worth, BlockFi claims to have more than, you know, a uh, billion dollars worth of assets, but only about $257 million in cash on hand. Um, so one of the questions now is, of course, there's a, you know, a pretty big gap between $257 million and a billion. What exactly are those assets in? And you know, what would it take to liquidate them or to otherwise turn them into something that, you know, can help BlockFi either you know, restructure or at least, you know, give back to its customers and help them, you know, withdraw their funds. On top of that, so we know there's this discrepancy between uh, what they have in, in liquid cash and then what they have in assets. How much do they owe, though? Um, we don't have a firm number. They did check off on the first filing. Uh, the check for, you know, between uh, 1 and 10 billion, I think, or, yeah. So that's a that's a big range. <laughs> yeah, the, these, and the thing is, like, this is a range that's like pre, uh, you know, thing on the form. So it's not like they're saying like they're deliberately being obtuse. This is just how the forms are designed. Um, hopefully, within the next come you know couple of hearings, we'll start getting a better sense of, you know, both the liabilities and the assets, and it'll give us a better sense of the actual financial picture of what BlockFi is in, and you know whether they can indeed come back as you know the same company or, you know, slightly restructured company, or if they're going to have to liquidate or, if, you know, some other, you know, third option is going to have to happen. Right. It's, it's, yeah. Cause it's, if thinking about it, like, you know, if it's a billion, then, oh, well maybe if, you know, they sell off all the assets and things like that, and maybe they could end up, you know, maybe not everyone gets everything they're owed, but good portion of everyone will get what they're owed. If it's 10 billion, then we're talking about 10% they'll be able to cover if even that, you know, like that's quite the range. Um, So, so do you, do you think there's going to be a comeback for a company like BlockFi? Like I'm, I I know when FTX was stepping in, everyone was like, okay, this is what's going on. They'll be pulled into FTX maybe. Uh, Also, uh, uh, let me ask you that first. And then I'll, I'll, I have another question. I'm jumping all over the place. There's so much going on. Um, what's your your uh gauge on on that it's hard to say but you know speculating again a little bit just based on how the first blockfi hearing has gone and comparing that to for example celsius and voyager and ftx of course blockfi does seem to have a i want to say a more reasonable sense of what's going on right now celsius is you know comeback plan requires creating a mining facility that doesn't currently exist and generating revenue in a you know bear market whereas blockfi yeah they haven't really gotten to you know in detail on the revenue generation yet but in their first hearing they said okay you know we're going to lay off tutors of our staff it's going to save x amount of you know dollar or things like 34 million dollars per year um like they actually seem to have uh, a better grasp of you know what they're doing than a lot of these other companies have so if you're looking for reassurances that's one but again this is speculative um you know obviously we need a couple more hearings to you know it's all going to come down to you know just what exactly they what the actual numbers are you know what are the actual liabilities where are the actual assets um without that you know all we have is speculation but you know just again based on the first day hearings it like if I was a BlockFi customer, I'd be a bit more comforted than if I was a Celsius customer. Right, right. No, I hear what you're saying, but at the same time, it's sort of like, uh, you know, those companies that were running like Ponzi schemes, BlockFi was doing better than them at least. I mean, it's not too. It's certainly more right. reassuring, but not reassuring. <laughs> yeah, and again, it really is just going to come down to the numbers, you know. Um, either BlockFi has enough assets and or the ability to generate enough assets to offset the liabilities and make the customers whole, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then, you know, things are going to look down quite a bit. Right, right. So so what, what came to mind when I was asking that question that I wanted you to somehow go back and forth, but I'm glad we worked it out that way. Um, in August, Coindesk um, had a piece about how FTX could have actually bought BlockFi for only $15 million dollars. What what was that all about? Do you do you recall? Yeah, yeah. Well, so basically, 
in the FTX uh, BlockFi Rescue DLD 400 million line of credit, um, there were certain conditions that, uh, if met, would give FTX the option to acquire BlockFi entirely in July 2023. And uh, depending on how many of these conditions were met, the price could actually change. And uh, I believe lower bound might have been, you know, I think something like, uh, not a lot, obviously. The upper bound was, uh, I think, 270 something million. So it was a pretty wide range. And these conditions included things like, you know, certain regulatory licenses. BlockFi, of course, is trying to uh, get SEC approval and, you know, registration for, um, you know, some of its yield products. Basically, if BlockFi were to meet some of these conditions, the price of the acquisition would go up. If BlockFi failed to meet some of these acquisitions, then it would go for a lower price. Um, Obviously, this uh, transaction's now been terminated, according to BlockFi, because of, you know, I think FTX suddenly not having money. But, yeah, for a while there, it looked like what would end up happening is BlockFi would secure some of these regulatory approvals that it's been looking for from the SEC, and then FTX would be able to acquire it, and in doing so, acquire those licenses. Got it. Okay, so it was... Okay, that, that's... The... That's not so out of the ordinary, I guess, in terms of a deal that could have been made. Um, but like you mentioned, uh, FTX uh, turning out to not have $275 million, nor the lower end at $15 million. might Might put a little damper on that deal. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has said he was down to his last $100,000. Uh, BlockFi, would you take 50 k <laughs> Well, maybe actually at the end of this, who knows? <laughs> who knows this, how this is gonna turn out, right? So, so, so let's let's actually talk a little bit because as we're talking right now, um, you know, when this show's published, when all you wonderful listeners and viewers will listen and, and he, uh, see this episode, uh, this would already have happened. But as I'm sitting here uh, right now. Sam Bankman-Fried just spoke at a New York Times event, and uh, my guest was uh, right on top of it, watching and taking notes for the whole thing. Was there anything in particular that stood out to you, Nick? Well, so yeah, Sam Bankman-Fried spoke to at the New York Times Dealbook Summit uh, to Andrew Ross Sorkin, who is one of the authors of the New York Times Dealbook newsletter. I want to say um, just we could actually stop right there when I said, is there anything that stood out to you? And that actually is legit. The yeah, fact that Sam Bankman fried showed up on uh, via via remote, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah he he was there taking questions at a New York Times live event. Um, I'm sure his lawyers uh, did not approve. Uh, this is a guy who uh, might very well go to jail and. Uh, and he was uh, open to questions. I mean, I, I will say this as a, as a, a journalist, and I'm sure you feel the same way. I say, good for him. He should he should do more interviews. I mean, look, my my inbox is open. I would love to talk to him. Um, I have many questions that I don't think other reporters have asked yet. And uh, if he's willing to talk, you know. Like I said, my inbox is open. But yeah, no, I mean, it, you're right. It's, it's very unusual that he was giving a media interview. I mean, this isn't even his first. He's spoken to reporters. He's spoken to all sorts of people. There are videos. There are audio recordings. There are DMs. Um, he's written letters to his former employees that you know we published. Um, it, it is remarkable how much he's willing to – he's going on Good Morning America tomorrow. He I spoke to that. George Stephanopoulos. Um I so. will say it is – I'm totally fine. Like I feel like the, the people who are not in the media world, which is fine, but I feel like they are missing the critique sometimes. It's not bad that these outlets are giving him this platform. We should want him to say as much on record as we can possibly get out out from him. But Absolutely. I do – But I and I've seen people complain that they're even doing that. No. Let him talk. That's the whole – that's what you want. Let him talk. Yeah. Um, but I do agree with the critique, and I, I, I've critiqued it myself, that some outlets are framing things very weirdly. Um, they're enamored, I guess, by how this all went down. 
and they're treating him as I don't know. I think I saw the, I think I saw a trailer for that Good Morning America appearance he's gonna have, uh, which again, by the time people are, are are listening to this, it'll already be out. But it was like, how did everything? He he rose to a billion worth billions of dollars. How did everything go so wrong for this young man who was the future of crypto or something like? Like just bizarre, just literally lay out what what actually happened or just let his words speak for them don't need to yeah. frame him as some sort of like crypto wonder kid when i mean look what happened people lost money <laughs> yeah no i mean i will say i think you know andrew sorkin did a decent job of asking some of the questions you know uh there have been a number of questions about just issues like um you know, why were people, why were FTX customers wiring money to Alameda, you know, uh, which is right on there, a pretty big question and a very obvious one. Um, questions about, you know, he did ask, uh, you know, what uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers have said. It was definitely unusual. He was talking about his, he's talking about how his attorneys told him to stop talking to people and he decided to disregard that, um, which I'm sure made his attorneys very happy. Uh, he was talking about, um, you know, one thing that really stood out is he said a number of times he really tried to, you know, not just imply, but outright state that he had nothing to do with Alameda, that he had no idea what was going on in Alameda. One of the core, you know, allegations right now is that Alameda Research took, you know, $8 billion from FTX, some of which might have been customer funds and looked to have been customer funds and lost it. And he was, you know, he says he's, you know, it's his duty to try and fix things, to make things right. But he's not really taking responsibility for how exactly that $8 billion got from FTX Alameda. He, you know, he was asked directly about it. He said that, you know, uh, there might have been some issues. They, he didn't know about the leverage, all sorts of things. But that's the thing that I think really stood out. I think that's probably one of the areas that investigators, you know, law enforcement and uh, officials are really going to be paying attention to because obviously they're going to want to know how exactly did these $8 billion go from the company that said it wouldn't do anything with customer deposits to this other company, which lost them. And why didn't he he just, why didn't he now after everything we just spoke about, why didn't he just start a crypto lending company and then just give Alameda a $1 billion loan as if they were three arrows capital and BlockFi. I mean, yeah. it would have been to- it would have been totally in the clear. <laughs> well, I mean, also one of the very interesting things is he's now said a number of occasions that he regrets filing for bankruptcy. They, um, you know, he feels like he was forced out of his company. Which, by the way, um, I don't know if you've talked about this in previous shows or not, but it's worth noting that the new leadership at FTX has actually gone on record denouncing everything that the old CEO said. You know, they we've had statements, we've had court filings saying that Sam Bankman-Fried no longer speaks for or is employed by FTX. And so, uh, you know, when your old company, which is currently going through a, you know, a very severe bankruptcy process, a very complex process is saying, yeah, by the way, this guy who's been talking to reporters and stuff, we got nothing to do with him. Like that, that's just him. It's probably not a good sign. I mean, it's, it seems like his, I mean, we we can this this isn't this is just you could just tell from how he treated uh, FTX to begin with, but it seems like his identity is wrapped up into FTX. Like I don't think he he views it as like a company. I don't even think it. I don't. I don't even know if he realizes that like it was an actual company that people depended on. He almost seems to like viewed as an extension of himself in a way from just hearing him talk about the idea that he's still trying to talk for the company. Like, like you mentioned, I've, I've never seen anything uh, like that before, but the closest maybe was when uh, Papa John got (laughs) kicked out of his company. I mean, and the dude still acted, he felt like he was like his, he got backstabbed by his pizza company. Um, It's, it's, very weird and you know his this is a small bore compared to everything else we're talking about but his twitter handle is sbf underscore ftx i mean it clearly is more to him than just oh a company i was running this company was part of his identity like i feel like 
that's why he can't let go? Yeah, I think, you know, partly that and partly, um, again, kind of a bit speculative here, but, you know, just trying to clear his name, so to speak, you know. Um, again, he was asked a number of questions about, you know, what kind of responsibility he holds uh, for this whole thing, um, ranging from, like, you know, the fact that FTX bought private properties for people, uh, you know, employees, including Sam Bankman-Fried's parents. He was asked about the pro- you know, vacation home for his parents, and he said he didn't know how that happened. Which, oh, come on. And no, it, the, 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 tell me there was pushback. I think Andrew moved on a little bit after that. But, you know, there, it, it is straining credulity a little bit to say that he's, you know, he owned, I think, 90% of Alameda, but he didn't know what was going on with it. Uh, he founded the, his company. Weren't the properties that he had bought or apparently according to him that somehow were bought for his parents weren't these like multi-million dollar like homes like multiple properties i remember i recall reading like this we're not talking about like oh uh how did a you know a two three hundred four hundred thousand dollar condo in florida get purchased or something like that. we're talking about literally like full-blown multi-million dollar full complexes were purchased yeah vacation homes um FTX, the entity, appeared to own quite a bit of real estate in the Bahamas, uh, which, yeah, I mean, some of that, sure, okay, you're buying uh, campuses for your, you know, your company, uh, maybe you're buying some homes for your employees, but yeah, the sheer scale of it, I think, is what's really taking everyone by, not just surprise, but also just kind of like, you know, it, it is stunning, and people really want to know what exactly is going on, and also, were these customer funds used to purchase these properties or were they corporate funds? And if so, where did the corporate funds come from? Because there's now this, you know, I think there's gonna be this very, you know, high amount of uh, suspicion as to anything FTX has bought ever. Now that the you know question is, well, how much of that was customer funds? Yeah. I, again, pure speculation, but it, it seems like it's customer funds. <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's like almost, that's what it appears to be yes um one thing that i, I uh on on the last episode of the show um we talked a little bit about um the political donations that sbf made and there was a lot made out of how much he gave to democrats and people were pointing out that he also gave to republicans but it is true that what we knew at the time was that the vast majority was given to Democrats with a huge asterisk that a majority of that money was for primaries and not towards like helping Democrats defeat Republicans per se. Um, but he's now come out with additional information claiming that there are political donations, a large number of political donations that he donated that was previously unreported. Yeah, so this was in one of his phone calls with, um, you know, someone else. He said that he made a number of dark money donations to Republicans uh, to match the primary donations he made to Democrats. I will say I haven't seen anything specific in terms of evidence on that, and... You know, I, I think for something like this, you would want some kind of evidence to just kind of, you know, anything that he's saying or claiming, you'd want to be able to support. But I also have no trouble believing that, um, you know, if his goal is to support specific candidates, that maybe he was doing things for appearance's sake. It is true that a lot of his donations to the Democratic Party were through primaries. Um, I think he made you know, some random race in Oregon, like one of the most expensive races in the country for primaries. Yeah, yes. out of nowhere. Carrick Flynn, in total, SBF donated close to $40 million altogether for the 2022 midterm elections. And out right. of that, I believe the exact number is like somewhere around like $37 million. And out of yeah. that $37 million, $10.5 million went to a single primary race in Oregon. I mean... And as we recall, he didn't even win. He did not win. He got 11,000 yeah. votes, which was like, I think, like uh, 
somewhere like it was like uh, something like 15, 16, 17, maybe as much as 18 or 19 percent. I don't remember the exact percentage, but point being not a high uh, return. Yes, not. <laughs> I mean, seems like there is a, uh, <laughs> a running uh, uh, bit of a team current here. Yeah, between. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, so um, I mean, it is really just uh, I I it sort of makes sense if, you know, he's, you know, he was saying that he was pushing for candidates who had pandemic preparedness plans or who wanted to address at least, you know, this idea of a new pandemic. And so, okay, I guess that makes sense. But also the sheer amounts that he was dumping into the primary races, uh, I think took a lot of people by surprise because you don't normally expect to see, you know, five figure donations in primary races. Those are the ones where you're trying to get ready for, uh, you know, whatever, excuse me, seven figure. That five figure, right. um, you know, it, it is just you know, through the equi- equilibrium off. Um, that being said, we're already going to have hearings about it. We're going to see hearings from the House, you know, various House committees next year about these donations. So it's it's going to be a very you know interesting time, I would imagine. Right, right, and I should say that the uh, that that conversation about the political donations, where SBF claimed that he donated close to the same amount to Republicans via you know dark money organizations, where you know you don't have to, uh, they don't have to publish where their funding comes from. Um, that happened in a phone call with Tiffany Fong, um, who I'm not familiar with her, so I'm not gonna you know I don't mean anything negative when I say this, but obviously compared to like the New York Times, this is like just a random person. Um, which means that maybe, uh, both you and I, Nick, should reach out to SBF because it seems like maybe he will, t- <laughs> maybe he'll come on this show. Maybe he'll talk to CoinDesk at this point. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, look, I think, you know, he, I, he could do a lot worse than, you know, talking to either of us, I think. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so let's, let's, I guess, close on this episode, just wrap back around to BlockFi. Um, and so where do things stand for BlockFi? Do I know you had mentioned in terms of like depends on how much they owe, but like how is how are they currently like um, you know how are the the CEO founders of the company how are they sort of going with it now? Like um, oh, and I meant to ask this. Let me ask this to you first before we get into that. Were they one of those companies who were? Uh, this is almost a, a short thing, but I want to make sure to be to be fair. Were they one of those companies who were saying, "We're not close. We're not freezing withdrawals. Don't worry about it. Your money is safe with us." <laughs> right before everything uh, went to shit, they might have been. I'm actually not 100 percent sure because I know that, um, you know, they announced the withdrawals weeks before they went into bankruptcy, um, and they, you know, they said it was very specifically because of the whole FTX confusion. So honestly, I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, right. It wouldn't surprise me if they were, because again, like you said, every company has been kind of doing that. But um, I haven't, I haven't seen anything one way or another on that. Got it. So how are they? How are they currently handling everything going on? Like, what has their reaction been to the FTX uh, situation? And how are like what is the uh, the front they're currently putting on to you know? For for BlockFi's future. Well, so the first thing they've done is obviously they're, they're going through the bankruptcy process. They've got a judge signing off on expenditures now. So, um, you know, cash management programs, trying to figure out, okay, what can they pay vendors? What can they pay utilities? Um, so all that's getting signed off on by a judge um, in the you know, bankruptcy court of New Jersey. They're suing BlockFi, or sorry, they're suing FTX, obviously, uh, to try and get the, the Robinhood shares because... Uh, they were pledged them as part of the collateral for, you know, this uh, not calling him or not immediately defaulting Alameda on that loan. How that goes, um, I mean, I've, I haven't spoken to anyone formally about this, but uh, a couple attorneys I've spoken to say it's going to be a very complicated case because those Robinhood shares are also probably part of the FTX bankruptcy estate as well. And so it's going to be a very, you know, difficult case for BlockFi to win. But they're going for it anyway to try and just say, okay, yeah, we're doing everything everything we can to generate or to, you know, secure more assets that we can then liquidate to pay back our customers. Um, 
I mean, I will say again, this is the you know the fourth or fifth major bankruptcy case we've you know that I've covered this year. Um, they are doing things in definitely a much more organized and uh, less chaotic way than their compatriots have done, and you know, it, part of it might be because they appear to have hired a consultant to help them kind of figure out their options. Uh, they, you know, they've got an adult in the room who's uh, you know, looking at all these things and saying, okay, here's how you should proceed. May, that seems to be helping them, at least as far as this initial process goes. Right. And yeah, now we just have to wait and see. Got it. I hate to, I hate to undermine that by looking up and ending on this one, but I had, I had to, I had to see. Did you say it? And lo and behold, uh, Flory Mar- uh, Marquez, is that how her, she's the founder and CEO of BlockFi, uh, November 8th. There's a lot of action in the crypto markets today. Oh. So, something we have seen we have seen before and are used to managing. Deposits, withdrawals, trading, and lending are all up and running. A few more points, and she goes on this multi-thread tweet, uh, you know, Twitter thread, with the first uh, the, uh, tweet following up says, "All BlockFi products are fully operational." Lo and behold, about two days, little more than two days later, November tenth. Uh, they uh, pause withdrawals. Uh. <laughs> now that you mention it, and this is uh, going to be a little bit sad, but so I wrote the article when BlockFi announced that they were uh, suspending withdrawals, and I'm actually pretty sure I quoted that tweet. Right. No, I when it comes, I <laughs> totally feel you. I, there's so much going on, uh, and that you just can't even the, the timeline in your head is all off. I totally get it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think I just think that's so scummy. I'm sorry. I just think like this is ugh, I I think it's so it's one thing if this was if this was, there's even months in between these two things. But I'm sorry. Things don't change that much in 2 days. I'm 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 sorry. You knew it was going there. Uh what's her name again? Flory. I mean, come on. Um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just rough. I mean, it, it is one of those things where, you know, if you're a BlockFi customer and you see that, maybe you're reassured and you don't immediately move to withdraw your funds. And then two days later, it's all suspended anyway. I mean, the fact that so many people are owed in all these crypto lending, with all these crypto lending companies, it's pretty clear that that's exactly what happens, though, like in my opinion. I mean, it, it seems like, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't get the crypto advocate mindset. I mean, it's just like a constant, this constantly happening and there's no, no lesson learned. Like I'm not even saying like, uh, the lesson learned should be getting out of crypto, even though that's, that's what I personally believe. Uh, (laughs) but to me though, it was just like, oh, you'd think like, oh, you've seen this before time to at least move it into, uh, my own personal wallet go to a, a more reputable or at least a currently non-troubled and non-failing exchange. But it seems like time, time again, they're just like, oh, okay, I'm reassured. And then two days later, how did this happen? I mean, come on, what are you doing, people? <laughs> I, right before you know, we started this call, I was actually reading this article I wrote in 2019 uh, about a uh, – a crypto exchange founder who had lost his customers' money, and you know something I literally like a line that I wrote was, um, you know, at best he was like a careless late twenties tech bro. At worst he was a malicious scammer who took advantage of his customers to, uh, you know, basically take their money. And yeah, things are cyclical. You know, I gotta say that's what makes me think that Sam Bankman-Fried is being accurate when he says that if he didn't file for bankruptcy, he could have uh, found enough people to cobble up money to keep FTX going with, I mean, again, going for how long? Cause he obviously wouldn't have changed anything up. It would have just been, been more money to fuel exactly how he was running things. So there eventually would be a collapse, but I do think with how he propped himself up and where the, the legend of SBF was at that moment in time, I I I actually do believe him based on what we know about the crypto space and the people involved in it that he could have probably convinced enough people to give him money to keep it going for at least a little longer. It wouldn't surprise me. Right, right. 
I mean, I, I, uh, th- this is, this is, this is amazing stuff, really. Um, Nick Day, managing editor for global policy and regulation at CoinDesk. Thank you so much for joining me and working, uh, the scam economy, uh, listeners through this whole BlockFi situation and the latest going on with FTX and SBF. No, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks so much for having me again. Oh, I'm happy to have you on again in the near future too. Lot to lot to talk about. I, I, I'm sure something else will fall apart soon. So yeah, I mean, I, there's there's enough things honestly that have already happened. I got to catch up on. I literally could never, I could never like do like a, a podcast version of like just like a daily crypto news website because I would have to be sitting here recording. 24 7 to hit every single you know uh failure bankruptcy scam grift you name it it would be impossible to keep up with it's 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 definitely been a very busy very busy time just an amazing series of events and you know by now if you've listened to my previous coverage that this is where i say and we'll be staying on the latest when it comes to ftx and it just keeps coming so i mean just stay tuned to scam economy you know we're gonna cover it and hey maybe it's time i send out a dm to uh, sam bangman freight himself folks thank you for listening to this episode and as always patreon.com slash matt binder to support this show with a monthly paid subscription you could also follow me all over the internet on various social media platforms like at youtube.com slash matt binder over on twitter at both at matt binder and at scam economy you can also go to twitch.tv slash mattbinder and while you're there not just follow the channel but connect your amazon prime account to your twitch account and get that free twitch prime subscription every month that is a free for you paid subscription for your favorite creator that comes out of basically what you pay to Amazon already for your Amazon Prime subscription. Please give it to someone if you do, even if you don't want to give it to me because uh, you know any creator probably could use it a lot more than I don't know Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Go to scameconomy.com for all the links to the podcast version of the show. And while you're at your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, why not take a minute to leave a review for the show? By leaving a review for Scam Economy, you basically help get more eyeballs on this show. Because when you leave a review, it helps bump this show up the podcast chart rankings, which in turn helps people discover Scam Economy. And with all that out of the way, I guess it's time for me to say, I'll see you all next time on the Scam Economy. Scam Economy.